This is Come Follow Me with David Ridges for the week of March 15th through the 21st, covering Doctrine and Covenants 27 and 28. My name is Kevin Tolley, and I'll be your guest teacher today. I am an institute director at the Riverside California Institutes and the co-author, along with my good friend Patrick Bishop, of a volume entitled Apostolic Succession in the Restoration. When I was a kid, I remember uh, watching Ses- Sesame Street a lot. Um, when my when my kids started growing up, they watched th- the same episodes. And at the end of every episode, it seems as though they would always say something along these lines. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter W, or the number six. Well, along that same Sesame Street fashion, Doctrine and Covenants 27 is going to be brought to you by the letter C. Section 27 is going to cover information about covenants, company, and clothing. The first section that we're going to talk about, it talks all about covenants, the covenant of sacrament. The next item that we're going to cover is company, who you uh, choose to associate with. And then finally, we're going to talk about uh, clothing. What kind of clothing are you wearing? Finally, we'll go up to Doctrine and Covenants 28 and talk about where you choose to stand. But as we begin this, section 27, let's start with the section heading. Let's get a historical context. In early August, Joseph and Emma were living in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Two friends by the name of Sally and Newell Knight traveled from Colesville to come visit uh, Joseph and Emma. These were good friends, and they were about the same age as Joseph and Emma. They've been married for about the same amount of time. They're both somewhat newlyweds. Uh, Joseph and Emma had been married for about three years by this time, and uh, Newell and Sally for about five years. These two young couples sat down, and they were reminiscing about the beginnings of the church. Uh, Newell Knight had been baptized in uh, late May. His wife Sally was baptized the same day that Emma was. On the 28th of June. But there was an oversight. It's now early August and the realization had come that neither Sally Knight or Emma Smith had been confirmed a member of the church and given the gift of the Holy Ghost. Joseph Smith, after realizing this oversight, uh, recorded this. It was proposed that we should confirm them and partake together of the sacrament before he, Newell Knight, and his wife Sally should leave us. In order to prepare for this, I sent out to go procure some wine for the occasion, but it had uh, gone only a short distance when I met a heavenly messenger and received the following revelation. Uh, In the revelation, it begins in verse number one, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your God, your Redeemer, whose word is quick and powerful. Now, although this introduction states that these are the words of Jesus Christ, uh, apparently, according to Joseph, they were delivered by a messenger or an angel. In Hebrew, the word malach um, means angel or messenger. The same is true in Greek, angelos. Uh, and so here is an angel speaking the words of Jesus Christ. He continues, verse number two, For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink when you partake of the sacrament, if it so be that you do with an eye single of the glory. Verse number three, wherefore a commandment I give unto you that you shall not purchase wine, neither strong drink from your enemies. Then finally, verse number four, wherefore you shall partake none except to be made new among you. Now, this is, uh, this is the direction. Joseph at this point turns back around and says, I don't need to go get wine. 
Uh, but uh, they end up preparing their own wine of their own make uh, for this for the sacrament. The warning is very clear in the first few uh, verses of section 27 that the prohibition wasn't necessarily against wine. The prohibition was against wine from faulty sources. Don't purchase wine from your enemies. Now, if you go back to the chapter heading, there's something very interesting that's, that's written. In the chapter heading, it just clearly states, water is now used instead of wine in the sacrament services of the church. But in early church, this was not necessarily the case. Section 27, like I said before, just prohibits individuals from, from purchasing wine from their enemies. But it was very common from them, for uh, the early saints, to be able to purchase wine from trusted sources or make wine on their own. In fact, uh, the word of wisdom will not be revealed until 1833. Section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants won't come out for another, another three years or so. And so don't be startled as you study church history if you notice that Joseph and others continued to use wine in the sacrament uh, for quite some time after this point. In fact, it was a slow transition to take wine out of the sacrament. We don't have a specific date of when water replaced wine in the sacrament. But but there was a declaration in 1906 that the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve began using exclusively water instead of wine for their sacrament. So you can see, even in the first presidency, it won't be for a, for another uh, 70 plus years before wine is actually taken out of the sacrament and uh, replaced with water. So as to reiterate uh, verse 2, For behold, I say unto you that it mattereth not what ye eat or what ye shall drink when you partake of the sacrament, if it so be that ye do with an eye single to the glory. Now, there's an interesting doctrinal statement that is made later on in this section of the Doctrine and Covenants pertaining to the sacrament. But before we get there, I want to back up a little bit. Let's talk about covenants for for a minute and go clear back into the Old Testament. Um, Doctrine and Covenants uh, 27 becomes a capstone for something that began quite a ways back, back in Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. This is uh, Jehovah talking to the, uh, the prophet Moses, outlining specific blessings that will come to the Israelites if they follow the Lord's directions. Doctrine and Covenant 6.6 becomes a very important section when, when we come to understand section 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Exodus 6.6 makes this th- statement. As I read this, listen very carefully. Four promises are being made to the Israelites if they trust in and follow Jehovah. Exodus 6 6 says, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I, number one, will bring you out from under the uh, burdens of the Egyptians. There is the first promise that that he gives the Israelites. I will bring you out from under this burden, this bondage that the Egyptians have brought you in. Number two, I will rid you out of their bondage. It almost sounds like he is repeating himself. The King James English almost sounds like, uh, it's like a redneck speaking. Listen, I will rid you out. But the Hebrew adds something to a nuance of this. Number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens. Number two, I will rid you, which comes from the Hebrew natsal, which means 
to snatch, deliver, or rescue. Number one, I will bring you out from under bondage. Number two, I will deliver you from the bondage. Now this almost sounds like he's amplifying the blessings. Round one of the blessings, I'm going to bring you out. Round number two, I'm going to snatch you, deliver you. I'm going to rescue you from these bondage. This isn't, this doesn't mean I'm going to bring you out for a vacation, but I am going to snatch you out and bring you out from this bondage. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. This idea of an outstretched arm is, gives the imagery of almost like a lifeguard on the side, reaching out to rescue a drowning soul. The idea of an outstretched arm also illustrates the Lord's strength and his ability to deliver. He says, I will redeem you. Now, this, the, the word, be, the root, the Hebrew root behind the word redeem has this idea of kinsman, that, uh, that he will ransom or avenge. He is on your side. He is on your team. You are together like kin, like brother and sister, like, um, like family that you look out for family. So blessing number one, I will bring you out. Number two, I will deliver you out. This isn't temporary. This is a permanent deliver. Number three, we now have a relationship. We look out for one another. Here is blessing number four found in Exodus 6, 7. And I will take you for a people and I will be to you a God. This final one, I will take you from the Hebrew word lachach, which has a connotation in some of the contexts to denote a covenant relationship. That I will take you away and far from this pain and this sorrow. This is almost a stair-step set of blessings in the book of Exodus. Step number one, I will bring you. Step number two, I will deliver. Step number three, I will redeem. There's an ownership there. And then finally, I will take you for a people and I will take you far away from here. Now, these four promises will continue in ever in Israelite covenantal relationship. These four uh, promises made through Moses will remain. In fact, if we fast forward a few chapters to Exodus 12, 17, the Lord promises that these blessings, these four blessings um, will be observed in your generation by ordinance forever. I love this in Exodus 12, 17. They even separate the word forever. I know this is just King James English, but on my mind, this English rendition is fantastic. It really emphasizes that these four blessings, these four levels of how God's going to bless you is going to remain forever. These four blessings will be associated with the Passover and not just any part of the Passover. This is specifically becomes associated with four cups of wine that are drank at different times throughout the Passover ceremony. Whether it be one cup refilled four times or one singular cup, or, me, or four different cups or one cup refilled four times, it doesn't matter. These promises are associated with a cup that sits at the table of Passover. And the promises of Passover will remain as an ordinance forever. Now, let's fast forward to the New Testament before we jump back to these two young couples waiting to partake of the sacrament, um, Newell and Sally and Joseph and Emma. 
But let's take a pit stop before we go back into Harmony, Pennsylvania. And let's go into Jerusalem in the New Testament times. Matthew 27, verses 26 through 29. Here is the Savior as he sits down for a final meal with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Chapter 26, verse 26, he says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27 says, And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, you kind of have to go back and take a look. If we go back to Exodus chapter 6, that cup should be associated with four different blessings. I've often wondered, which cup is he picking up? At what point in this ceremony is he picking up the wine and having them drink? Is this, this supposed to represent, I will bring you from out under, from out, from underneath your burdens? Is this mean, I, I, I'm going to deliver you? I'm going to redeem you? Or I'm going to take you? Now, uh, Dr. Excuse me, Matthew 26, 29 makes this comment. He says, but I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this vine or the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, it's interesting that these four blessings are associated with this cup. The cup was associated with the Passover, which will be an ordinance forever. Jesus then in the New Testament takes the, uh, the attributes of this covenant and transforms it into the sacrament. The blessings associated with the Passover are now infused in that sacrament. Which still begs the question, when you pick up a sacrament cup and drink from that cup, which blessings are you partaking of? Is it number one? I'm going to come out of Egypt. If Egypt becomes a symbol for sin, step number one of repentance is stepping away from Egypt. I will bring you out. But if you're like me, some sins draw me back in. Some sins suck me back into it. And so maybe when you pick up that sacrament cup, you're maybe level one sacrament. For the next minute, I just, I'm just not going to sin. I'm going to do my best not to sin. Maybe for this hour, I'm not going to sin. This sacrament meeting hour, I'm not going to sin. Maybe for the whole day, I'm going to do my best to put, put a specific taskmaster, a sin in the rearview mirror and just put it behind me. Maybe you've gone to the next level of promises because God really wants to promise you. Where God promises that he will snatch or deliver you. Not take you out temporarily out of sin, but take you out permanently. What if that cup has to do with a kinsman relationship where he says, I will redeem you. In other words, I will be akin to you. I will avenge. I will ransom you. I will pay the price and we'll have that relationship. But let's be honest. We need to stay in this world for quite some time. (laughs) Maybe for some, a few more years, maybe for others, a few more decades, but we need to stay here for a while. But the day is going to come where the Savior is going to take us home to our true home. In the New Testament, the Savior says that he would not drink of this cup, 
that he would not take us out yet, but we needed to live here for a little while, to be tested, to be tried. But now let's go back to this revelation given through the prophet Joseph Smith. We're in this revelation, Doctrine and Covenants, this is, we're going to end this scripture chain, Doctrine and Covenants 27, verse number five, for the hour cometh that I will drink of the fruit of the vine with you on the earth. I wonder if the final fulfillment where God's going to take us out of the world and bring us into a paradisical glory, that covenant is yet to be fulfilled. But God promises, I haven't forgotten. And that the hour cometh where that final blessing that was given to Moses millennia ago would finally be fulfilled. The next time you partake of the sacrament, maybe open up your scriptures to Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. Take a look at those blessings. What blessings can you partake of as you partake of the sacrament? How, can, how have you seen in your, in your life how God has brought you out of sin? How God has rid you, delivered you, rescued you out of bondage? How he's redeemed you as a kinsman? Three different levels or promises associated with the sacrament. When Joseph returns home after uh, this revelation, uh, he records a portion of it. When this revelation was first published in 18, or first recorded, in, as far as we can tell, in 1831, the entire revelation wasn't there. Joseph says that the other part of this revelation came a little bit later. When, the publish, when it was actually published in 1835, a more expanded version of this revelation was outlined similar to what we have in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants today. And so this revelation came in pieces as Joseph received additional information. The next portion, as we've, we've just concluded talking about covenants, we're going to talk about company. This portion appears maybe to be added maybe in September of that, of that same year. As uh, this next section verses... Uh, the second part of verse number five, all the way down to um, verse number 14. This revelation outlines 12 individuals who apparently will be in this meeting when the Savior will partake of the sacrament again, fulfilling these promises. As you go through this revelation, we can see certain individuals. Moroni is outlined in verse number five. We have Elias in verse six. John, the son of Zacharias, in verse number 7. Verse 9, Elijah. Verse 10, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. Verse 11, Michael, Adam, the father of all. Verse number 12, Peter, James, and John. We have 12 individuals listed through here. It's interesting that there's, that there's 12 of them. That number seems to repeat throughout the scriptures. We have 12 apostles in the New Testament, 12 disciples in the Book of Mormon, 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. Seems to me that's a favored number, but we have these 12 individuals who apparently will be at the Savior when he has this grand sacrament meeting. I wonder what it'll be like to sit down with these individuals. Would you be able to recognize any of them based on our modern artwork? I wonder if these guys all look like regular individuals, unlike some of the artwork that's uh, depicted by Arnold Freeberg, <laughs> who shows everybody seven feet tall and filled with muscles. I wonder if these will all look like regular people as we sit down 
but they're heroic not because of what they look like, but of what they've done despite their surroundings. These are not perfect individuals, but they are individuals who have overcome their personal challenges and have remained faithful despite what was going on around them. This is an eclectic group. Now, granted, some of them cross paths. Obviously, Abraham knew Isaac. Isaac knew Jacob. Jacob knew Joseph. Peter, James, and John all knew each other. But there's some individuals like Moroni who stand apart. Many of these groupings lived in different times and different locations, but there is something they all had in common. They lived up to covenants despite trials and hardships. If we're going to sit comfortably down in this meeting and look over and see Abraham on one side, maybe Peter over there, we need to be like them in that we keep covenants. We keep and make covenants despite the troubles that happen all around us. Now, as far as, uh, you know, if we go into go into a little more detail with, with some of these, verse 11, it mentions Michael or Adam, the father of all. This might be the first indication that Michael is associated with Adam. It doesn't show up in church records until 1835 that this was common knowledge. But apparently, according to Joseph, that this revelation was recorded early, September 1830, that Joseph's making the connections between Adam and Michael, or Adam, the mortal name, and Michael, a pre-mortal name, who he was and who he became, and making that connection. Going on to the, the final section, uh, this idea of clothing. I want to read a couple verses here in verse 15 and 16 and pay close attention. Because what it appears as though is as Joseph is recording this revelation, he's lifting a very large portion from Paul's writings about the armor of God. But there is something here that's, that's interesting. Watch. Wherefore, lift up your hearts and rejoice. Be happy. Gird up your loins and take up upon you my whole armor, not parts of it, all of it, that ye may be able to withstand the evil day. Having done all, that ye may be able to stand. Stand, therefore. You notice the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16, three times it makes this comment of standing. That you need to be able to stand and withstand whatever is being thrown at you. Put on the whole armor of God. If you're not wearing the entire armor and you get hit, you might not get up. Now, imagine watching a football game. How much would, it, uh, would I have to pay you to go out onto a football field and play a full game with professional football players if you knew you had to be the lineman? How much would I have to pay you if you knew you had to be on the front line? How much would I have to pay you if you were on the front line with professional football players without any gear? Here is, um, here is Joseph in Dr. Covenants 27. Paul in the New Testament ultimately is the Lord saying, put on all the armor because you are going to get hit in this life. And if you're hit without the armor, you will fall and not get back up. If you're wearing the armor, the armor of God, you'll be able to dust yourself up and get back up. Wearing the armor does not mean the armor is going to stay pristine. Putting on the whole armor of God means that you'll be able to withstand hits when they come. Some blows will come like, like a steamroller. 
But if we're wearing the armor of God, we'll be able to get back up. Now, there's been a number of talks. Harold B. Lee, uh, back in the early uh, 1970s, gave a, a, a amazing talk describing on describing each element of the armor. You can find this in lots of places, but I want to talk about the weapon the adversary uses in verse number 17. If we're wearing all of the armor, we'll be able to stand against and be able to quench all the fiery darts. Now, this is not just a sharp implement that's coming at you, that you can blunt it away. If you're too close to the fiery dart, the flames will burn. These are things that we need to stay clear of. In, uh, I know this is a battle analogy. We're wearing armor and there's fiery darts coming at us. But I always made the connection between these fiery darts and the fiery serpents who came and bit the Israelites. The fire wasn't necessarily in those serpents, wasn't flames, but instead it was poison. I've wondered if this is, uh, if these fiery darts are poisonous darts, that even a small graze can cause a lot of damage. Putting your hand too close to fire can cause some serious damage. Or if it's poison, can cause serious damage. But the idea is stay clear of the devil's territory. Keep on the whole armor. If we're protected, or if we have the whole armor and we get hit, we'll be able to get back up. So as we look at these final things, uh, this final section, what clothing are you wearing? What pieces are you putting on faithfully? And what are there any pieces that you're neglecting? Think about your spiritual routine. What parts do we neglect? If we compare this uh, this armor of God to a nutritional plate, some foods are more appealing than others, but a well-balanced meal are going to have everything you need to survive a day. But some things on that plate might not look as appealing as others. Are we neglecting aspects of of testimony building activities because they're a little uncomfortable. They chafe a little bit. The warning here is put on all the armor. Don't pick and choose only the comfortable pieces. And so to review section 27, number one, we talk about covenants. What level of promises are you taking advantage of when you partake of the sacrament? Number two, the company. Would you feel comfortable sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who filled their their assignments faithfully, if you're not fulfilling your assignment faithfully? (laughs) And then finally, number three, put on the whole armor of God because you'll be hit in this life more than once. The armor protects and helps you stand. Let's move on to section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants really quickly. This uh, is a revelation Focusing on two individuals, Oliver Cowdery and Hiram Page. These two individuals are closely connected. And if we can connect section 28 back to 27, maybe it would be along these lines. How well are Hiram Page and Oliver Cowdery standing when we turn the page? Section 27 says uh, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all, being able to stand, stand therefore. And we see some faulty knees in section 28. These are good individuals, but there are a time where each of them tripped a little bit. 
hopefully uh, each of them were able to, to get back up right afterwards. Hiram Page, if you remember, is, uh, is associated with Joseph Smith early on. He is the husband of Catherine Whitmer. Now, if you remember, the Whitmer clan was a large clan, okay? Uh, the Whitmer family had eight kids. The oldest was Christian, then Jacob, John, David. Now, Catherine, the sibling right below David, is married to Hiram Page. And then incidentally, if I just push this a little further, Peter Whitmer and the Nancy and then little Elizabeth Ann, who will in a few years, when she grows up a little bit, will uh, marry Oliver Cowdery. So you can see that this is a tight-knit group. David Whitmer, Hiram Page, Oliver Cowdery, they're all very very closely associated. In the next few years, they'll all be related. And so this is, this is an interesting group, especially when you include Joseph Smith into the mix. As Joseph Smith comes in, he concludes uh, the translation of the Book of Mormon in the Whitmer home. Around siblings, they know all about gold plates. They know all about uh, Urim and Thummim, Seer Stones, and, and the rest. They've had a front row seat as close as you can get to the translation process of the Book of Mormon. This becomes very important as we turn the page over to section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, because it will it'll emphasize Hiram Page and Oliver Cowdery. We mentioned in section 27 that we need to stand holding the whole armor of God. There's a parallel between Hiram Page and Oliver Cowdery also as we look at section 28. Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith had gotten into a bit of an argument over a few procedural matters found in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it caused quite a bit of an argument and kind of a rift in their friendship for a short time as they uh, debated on, on some of the particulars in section 20. So Joseph has been um, questioned on his leadership on how things should be worded and run. Um, and then immediately afterwards, he has a run-in with, uh, with Hiram Page. Joseph and his lovely wife, Emma, had just moved from Harmony, Pennsylvania, permanently up closer uh, to the Whitmer uh, compound uh, where Hiram Page and others were living. Joseph had, had caught wind that Hiram Page had his own seer stone. Now, this was not an uncommon practice for individuals in the time period in the area to have a seer stone. But Hiram was, was receiving revelation. Uh, and apparently quite a few revelations over the, over the last little bit. Newell Knight, you remember him from the previous section, recalled that, that Hiram Page, quote, had quite a roll of papers full of these revelations and many in the church were led astray by them. These revelations in some way contradicted what Joseph was doing and what Joseph was trying to accomplish. Years and years later, um, well, not years and years later, but uh, in the fall of 1831, uh, a man by the name of Ezra Booth, who had joined the church a few months previously, served a brief mission to Missouri and then left the church, began to publish articles against the church. This is about a year later. But in these articles, he quotes some information about how Hiram Page was using the seer stone, using his own seer stone. According to uh, Newell Knight and George A. Smith and another individual, Emer Harris, they all say that uh, Hiram Page's stone was black and ultimately would have to be destroyed after all of this. But uh, Ezra Booth, in this critical uh, series of essays against the church, said that Hiram Page found a smooth stone upon which there appeared to be writing, 
which when uh, transcribed upon paper, disappeared from the stone and another impression appeared in its place. This, when copied, vanished in, uh, as the former had done, and so it continued alternately appearing and disappearing. It's interesting that uh, similar accounts have been given uh, about Joseph's seer stone. So he is receiving some sort of revelation that is coming in uh, through this, this type of seer stone. Now, if I pause that story just for a minute, there is a, a, a bit of excitement about uh, the Book of Mormon at this time, about the Lamanites, the Lamanites being Israelites. And if the Lamanites are Israelites, it was a uh, common belief that individuals were running into true Israelites, that these early members of the church were um, reliving the Bible in a very real and literal way. They had a prophet in their midst. They had new scripture. Israelites were all around them. And the idea, based off of the Book of Mormon, that the New Jerusalem or Zion would be somewhere on the American continent. That prophets weren't a far distant idea. Israelites weren't things from the past. That these early saints were living the Bible again. And they were looking to establish a city, a city of Zion, a city of peace, a city of refuge, where they could live live, uh, their beliefs. The revelations that Hiram Page was receiving in some way surrounded this idea of where the new Jerusalem was going to be. But in a very way, something about these revelations were contradicting what Joseph Smith was trying to accomplish. If we turn to section 28 of the Dr. Covenant, with this historical background, let's jump into a few verses and take a look. Verse number two makes this comment. But behold, verily, verily, I say unto, say unto thee, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church except my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr., for he received them even as Moses. Now, if you remember back when the church was organized, um, Joseph Smith, Jr. was appointed as the one to receive revelations. He was called, quote, a seer and a translator and prophet and apostle of Jesus Christ and elder of the church. Um at, at that revelation that was sustained in the next few uh, few weeks after section 28 is received another conference is going to be received where once again Joseph Smith is appointed by the voice of the conference to receive and write revelations and commandments for the church solidifying his place as the one who receives revelation for the entire church a concept that Hiram Page was misunderstanding um, in fact um, even Oliver Cowdery was still kind of uncertain on that issue. This becomes clear in some of the verses in section 28. Verse number three, And thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto him, even as Aaron. The idea that Joseph was compared to Moses and Oliver Cowdery was compared to Aaron. The revelation is very clear. Be obedient to what the what Joseph is saying. Verse number six, it says, In no uncertain terms, and thou shalt not command him who is thy head. So there was something in Oliver Cowdery that he wasn't quite grasping this concept. And if we use the analogy from section 27, it was throwing him off balance a little bit. But ultimately, Oliver would be given some very interesting responsibilities. Verse number eight 
Um, and now behold, I say unto you that thou shalt go unto the Lamanites to preach the gospel. And that's not all. Verse number nine. And now behold, I say unto you that this is not revealed and no man knoweth where the city of Zion shall be built, but it shall be given hereafter. So we're tying together these things. Joe, Oliver, you're misunderstanding a little bit, but you're not cast off. I'm giving you a responsibility to go and preach the gospel to Lamanites. The revelations that Hiram Page was, was receiving are off. No man knoweth where the city of Zion is. The guess is that Hiram Page is trying to identify this location. But, but Joseph says, I will determine it soon after. Oliver Cowdery is given another responsibility. Verse number 11. Not only is he going to lead the first missionary efforts to the Lamanites, but in verse 11, he's given a far more personal assignment. And again, thou shalt take thy brother Hiram Page between him and thee alone. This doesn't need to be a public rebuke. We don't need to humiliate or embarrass Hiram Page at this point. Um, but, he, but Oliver Cowdery is told to take him, away, take him aside privately and tell him that those things which he hath written from that stone are not of me and that Satan deceiveth him. This is to be a private conversation. There's no need to publicly humiliate Hiram Page at this point. He is starting to lead away quite a few. David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery were even at the edge of their seat as uh, Hiram Page was, was receiving these revelations. But the revelation, section 28 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, gives Oliver, who had a good rapport with Hiram, to go and as friends to sit down and, and lovingly correct this good brother. I am grateful for those who are... Uh, the Oliver Cowdery's in my life who have pulled me aside privately and corrected me when I've been off balance, when I have uh, misstepped and fallen over and have lovingly come and privately corrected me so I could stand up, dust myself off and, and keep my self-respect a little bit. Um, verse 11, I think is a touching verse. Hiram Page was out of line, but there's no need to make fanfare out of it. Now, ironically, even as I'm speaking this, that Hiram Page's uh, misstep is published in the Doctrine and Covenants, that we all get to read it. But I think this is an interesting concept, that the Lord's instruction was for Oliver to sit down privately and to speak and, uh, and to help him get on back on path. Now, as we look back over section 27 and 28, I wanted to remind you of, these, of the letter C, um, of the covenants, and that blessings can flow from, the, from that sacramental cup. That more blessings are yet to come. They're right around the corner. When the Savior comes again, and he will come again, he's going to come with a very interesting group, a company of individuals who we'll be able to sit among uh, if we keep our covenants, if we're wearing the whole armor of God, and if we're clothed correctly, if we're willing to stand despite the fact that we've been knocked down over and over again. I love this idea in section 28, that despite the fact that we make mistakes that God is going to lovingly help us back on our feet. And uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this time studying with me, section 27 and 28, and hopefully, we'll, hopefully you'll be able to join us again and on our next episode of Come Follow Me with David Ridges.